Welcome back to the Shock Absorber podcast. My name is Joel and it's wonderful to have you along with us as always, whether you're watching on YouTube or listening on your favourite podcast app. And uh, I am joined again by Stu. Just Hello. you. Hello, Joel. Yeah, just you and me today. Yes, that's right. Just Stu and you. <laughs> Sounds like a song. <laughs> or maybe like a... A band. Oh, like a band. A, like a two-piece. A two-piece you know, like, band. Um, <laughs> Stuart, you. Yeah, who's, uh, was it Simon and Garfunkel, which is a bit like that. Stuart, you. You never know. Yeah, we could write a song about being an island. Oh, I see, yeah. Um, I, mm. There's a few songs about islands, actually. Didn't they sing a song about being an island to themselves, sitting in his room reading a book or something, Simon and Garfunkel? I don't, I don't actually know Simon and Garfunkel. And then there was actually. Islands in the Sea. <laughs> They usually are. Islands are usually in the sea. How did that song go? Islands in the breeze. Breeze, see? Oh, you uh, uh, sail away with, with me. me. That one. Yeah, that one. Yeah. Oh, okay. We could rewrite that. My Island Redo. Home. My Island Home. Mm. Yeah, there you go. Mm, yes. There's all sorts of songs what about a, islands. What a start to the podcast. <laughs> we just created a... Just a lost 50% of our listeners <laughs> in the last 30 seconds. Because we just turned, in, turned into um, starting up a duo. Yes. So, but we'd just be singers. I don't think we could do music that no, well. No, I can't sing either. Okay, okay. Can you sing? I mean, I suppose I'd like to think I can, but I probably can't. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we'll, we'll start it. We'll uh, look out for our new album coming out. That's what we'll talk about. Anyway, it's wonderful to have you along with us. Um, we're going to be talking about kind of uh, sell or coming up with an idea, selling it, and or not selling it. Sorry, it's probably not the right word, but adopting an idea and why yeah. and why and how people adopt ideas. Yeah. And uh, I was telling you just before we started recording that I watched the movie Air. Yes. Which is, uh, I don't think they wrote it, but it's uh, Ben Affleck and Matt Damon's, they haven't done a movie for a long time. Yeah. They obviously had the, what's their seminal movie called? It's, it's completely slipped my mind. What's the one where he's in Boston and he's a really smart guy? Uh, oh, I can see it. it. Yes. And uh, <laughs> he's smart and he says, Robin how Williams you like them it? apples? Yeah. How's them apples on the note on the window? <laughs> Famous scene. We have to we have to find this oh, movie. Oh gosh, oh, there's so many people listening. Like you guys cannot, and they wrote it together. That was the cool thing. They Goodwill Hunting. Goodwill Hunting. What yes. a great movie. That was a good movie. Um, so I believe they haven't done many movies together since then. Yeah, but uh, they've created a production company, and this is their first movie together. Yeah. So. Uh, Matt Damon is the main character of this. I uh-huh. believe Ben Affleck directed it, yeah. but he's also in it. Yeah. And it's a story of uh, how Nike signed Michael Jordan as the, one of their athletes and to wear their shoes and obviously promote their brand and yep. they promoted Jordan. Yep. And I thought um, it was quite interesting looking how Matt Damon, who's the uh, main character the main character uh, by the name of Sonny Vaccaro, gets people on board to actually sign Michael Jordan because mm. everyone thought it was a lost cause and they didn't really want to actually invest much time in it because uh, he's he's kind of part of the basketball division. He knows college basketball really well. They know everyone that's coming out of the 1984 draft and they're like, these are the people that are coming out. They even put it up on the board in the movie and I don't know how much truth there is to it, but I think it's obviously based on a true story. Yeah. So they put everyone that's coming out of the... I've been already picked in the 1984 draft and it's like Akeem Olajuwon's in there and they're like, no, nah, he's signed for Converse at right. that point. Then they've, uh, there's another guy, I can't remember his name, and there's um, they're Jordan like, yeah, he's decided to go to Adidas. And and apparently Jordan didn't even want to have a meeting with Nike. That's how low on the scale they were at the time. You so Nike's an emerging brand in the 1980s, yes. is that right? Yeah, so that's when right. When did they start? I believe, I can't remember exactly, but I think it's Phil Knight, um, they call the shoe dog. Shoe dog. <laughs> yeah, that's the name of his uh, biography. Okay. Uh, he started in the early seventies. Yes. There's a little part of the movie where he says he bought the swoosh design mm. for a really cheap price in 1971. Right. But Phil Knight was very much a runner. Yes. So that's when Nike started. Was as a running. So company. Nike did the opposite to Vans. When Vans tried to break into different sports, it defused their brand and it didn't work as well but when nike expanded into basketball that was good for their brand yeah and i think this is probably the moment that made nike the right. what it is okay that's because cool. so they all because they're a big brand now well exactly probably oh, the biggest, biggest yeah right, brand. right they put all the 1984 draft picks up and they're like oh charles barkley and they're like no we don't want to pick him there and it's funny there's a little moment in there where they say oh he won't be good in front of a tv camera even though he's done tv punditry for years now which was i think there was a little joke in there but they were like, Jordan's going to Adidas. That's what he, he wants to wear Adidas. That's what's cool in the culture right now. 
And then the movie goes on and Sonny is like, I, I think he's the one. We have to sign him. And he, he sees a, a shot from a, a North Carolina game that, that was the college that Jordan played for yeah. and says, this is the one. I know he's the man because like, why would you let an 18-year-old take this kind of shot at this time, kind of time to win a, 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 a very important game? Right. And so he tries to convince them, instead of spreading the $250,000 budget that they have, to just focus it all on Jordan. Wow. And he goes out even to North Carolina, breaks all the rules, and supposedly he's unprofessional going to talk to the, the parents um, behind the agent's back and all that kind of thing, just to convince them to even come. Because he was like, I'm not even meeting. Jordan was like, I'm not even meeting with Nike. I can't be bothered. And eventually they get him in. They do, some, they do different things to what uh, the Converse and the... Um, Adidas meeting that Jordan went to, they set it up differently. And in the movie, and I don't know if this is true, but during the meeting, they show a video and they're, and they're all like, this is terrible. This video is terrible. Jordan's not going to like this. They interrupt the movie and Matt Damon just this, does this amazing speech. Now, it's probably just a sport, bit of a sports movie thing of doing an amazing speech, which yeah, always yeah. happens. But that's apparently when he really sold it. And... Um, Michael Jordan's mum, who was apparently the one that runs the family, was like, thank you, that'll, that'll do. And they actually made a spe specific sneaker for him too. So instead of saying uh, what Adidas and Converse said was like, well, of course, you, the best players always play with the best sneakers. That's, they're our sneakers. They said, we want to build the brand around you. And they made a shoe uh, that was, there's an NBA rule that you have to have 51% of the shoe has to have white on yep. it. Yep. And they said, is that, that still the case, or was it? Just I, I think it's days? changed now. Right, I think, yeah. I mean, the NBA is seen as a as a very player power league, right? And the uh, teams don't have as much power as say okay. some other sports. But so I would suggest it's probably changed. And I would suggest that Jordan's decision to do this, to have a sneaker, or Nike's decision that said we'll have a, we'll have a sneaker. It'll have too much red on it because he drafted with the Chicago Bulls, and the Chicago Bulls are black and red. Yeah, and he said. We'll pay, Sonny said, we'll pay the $5,000 fine that NBA will fine you every time you wear those shoes. Wow. okay. Just to show that you're just different to get the and shoe to stand out. out. Yeah. And so that's where the Air Jordan brand... The high top Air Jordan. Yep. With the Air Jordan with the hand going yeah. like this, so slam that, uh, that That didn't come out Oh, not in the first one? Because that picture is from... I can't remember which dunk contest is, but when he flies ah. from the free throw line, yeah, right. that's where that image comes from. Ah, okay. So that was they originally called it Air Jordan, but that that insignia or that actual yeah, yeah, picture, yeah. that really famous one, yeah, yeah. Is, that didn't come until a few years mm. later. But uh, I thought it was a really fascinating way of seeing how you actually come up with an idea and uh, get people on board for that yeah, idea. Yeah. And I know, and I like, I have always seen that as one of your. Uh, really great characteristics of you come up with many ideas. Mm. <laughs> that thing is very true. But I think you're also really good at building teams and getting people on board with those ideas. So I thought that's worth talking about in regards to church. So mm. maybe I suppose the first question is like, why do you come up with so many ideas? <laughs> I don't know. I, I, think, I think, well, actually, I think I do know. I think the reason I try and think up new ideas is that if I notice that things we've been doing for a while... Mm. Uh, and not working as well as they did when we first came up with the idea. I think I feel permission to try and think of new ideas to see if we can cut through. So I think when I look at ministry, um, there's some things that don't change. We don't change the word of God. We don't change the the uh, the, the message of the gospel. But in terms of how we organise the church and how we uh, organise our ministries. Uh, there are principles that are biblical principles in the New Testament that we can really lean heavily on, but the New Testament's not prescriptive on how we do church. So I think within the context of that, I feel like there's a permission to think through different strategies of church. Um, and practices should come from the Bible, and they're also influenced by how you, how you uh, put those practices into context of where you're ministering, I think. So... So when we think about Solis and the ministry we do, we talk about the fact that it's important to continue to have very strong grasp of the gospel and our reformed evangelical theological position. Um, but then, you know, how do we run the Friday night, the Saturday night gatherings? Do, even the fact that we have Saturday and Friday night gatherings is, was a little different when we first started. 
because uh, when we first started thinking about those things, we only ever did church on Sunday. And um, we obviously, in communication with our elders and with our uh, bishop and others, we talked through what are, what are some of the things we could try that would be different. And um, I think in the context we're in, in Sydney, there's so many people doing the same kind of thing that I think that if a few people try and do a few different things and they don't work, it's not going to wreck the whole. It's just going to maybe come up sooner or later with some new things that might work too. So it's not like I come up with new ideas to try and reinvent the wheel for the sake of it or uh, because we think we're particularly um, good at what we do and we, we're the best at it or anything silly like that. It's more like, well, you know, there's a lot of people who don't know Jesus and are there any anything we can do humanly as we pray and preach the word of God to um, help people to get their heads around what Christianity is all about and what Jesus is all about. So, yeah, that's kind of my motivation, I think. Yeah, I think that's got... Any organisation is a reflection, I think, of the, the leadership. And I think that is kind of what you're saying is trying to come up with new ideas and solutions is kind of baked into how we do church. And yeah, I think it is a bit. I think you've done that intentionally. And especially, you know, we call the, the podcast The Shock Absorber. Yep. <laughs> and that's it's the exactly idea of it. Yeah, yeah doing yeah. the same thing. Was, what about outside of church context? Have you ever... The reason I'm going to ask you this question is because there's a book, one of my favourite books is called Mastery, which is by one of my favourite writers, Robert Green, and he talks about how people invest a lot of time in one thing um, and then a lot of more avenues open up to them. And he says to, for people to actually find out what they would like to work on that is find out what you were good, what you enjoyed doing as a child. I was wondering, do you have, do, is there any aspects of your childhood or growing up where you thought, I'm coming up with, I want to come up with new ideas for this rather than some other people doing. It's a really interesting question. I think when I was young, I, I really did have a really strong uh, conviction that Jesus is my Lord and I wanted to be mm. serving him. I had a really strong conviction about that. But even early on, I remember listening to my parents talk about the fact that there were lots of young people who didn't go to church and they were mm. trying to do things to try and help young people to hear and understand the message of the gospel so i suppose i was part of that conversation even in on the edges of that conversation i think as i grew up i remember thinking there's a lot of people who don't know jesus and i'd tell them about church and say, hey why don't you come to church and they go i don't want to go to church and then i think that naturally just got me to go oh i wonder why they don't want to go to church i wonder if if i could explain it to what to them why i go to church stuff like that so i think i was sort of i don't know i used to like sharing the gospel with my friends when I was in primary school. So <laughs> I think that interaction with people who aren't Christians got, just got me thinking about, oh, what's the the way I can answer that question or how can I answer that question? Yeah, I think that's probably like it. Um, also, actually, interestingly, in football, I remember thinking, what's the most effective way to score a goal? I remember thinking, you know, we've got certain ways of doing it. Is, is there any other way we could outwit the defence and things like mm. that? So. I remember I was pretty quick. I didn't have a lot of skill, but I was pretty quick. So I used to just think if I just push the ball down the right wing and run really fast <laughs> and then tell my midfielders and strikers what I'm going to try and do and whoever goes – there happened to be a midfielder in my team that was faster than me, Jeff McCrowan. So we used to just – in the early days, we we're, were in um, – oh, what would it have been? Year seven, I think. And we used to just – just leg it like I remember <laughs> someone had pushed the ball to me and I'd push it down the right wing and I'd just run as quick as I could mm. most of the time I used to beat the defender and by the time I got to the defender Jeff was in the middle and I'd pass it to him and mm. that was pretty effective so yeah I remember thinking I wonder if there's ways new ways of doing things in that mm. context as well I mean it seems like the important question in coming up with an idea in the first place is asking the question why yeah, you know, yeah. there's a frustration a there point. there's a there's a sticking point and then mm. I mean, I think some. I think I like to do that too, and I think sometimes my frustration is, why don't you want to figure this out, guys? Mm. Sometimes, mm. and people are just like, "Well, that's how it is." I think you're right. A lot of people just go, "Yeah, that's how it's always been done. That's how we'll keep doing it." Yeah, and uh, yeah, I mean, in the earliest days of Solis, when I was really young, like 20, 20 years old, twenty one years old, I remember the reason we were trying all the new things we were trying is because none of our friends went to church and none of them wanted to go to church. So we were really keen for them to come to church. So we just kept talking about what is youth group, what is and we came up with a new idea which was instead of running a youth group, why don't we as youth leaders be a peer group? So that was a redefinition of what that youth ministry was. And so as four youth leaders we decided to be best friends for the gospel and invite other people to hang out with us. And so that seemed to work a lot 
easier than running a youth program on a Friday night with games in a hall and then a talk and then a supper, which is what we'd been brought up to do. But everyone else was doing that at the time. And we were like, yeah, let's just be mates. And that seemed to really resonate with Gen Xs when we were young. So, yeah, there's an example of that. And it reminds me of in, in Air, the, um, one of the things about signing the deal was the Jordans agreed to sign with Nike, but they said in one condition. And they said, well, because Adidas had matched the same amount. They were, they were fine with that. So I think it was $250,000 for five years. And they said, but we want a percentage of the revenue of each sneaker that has the Jordan name on it. The family said that? Yeah. Wow. And so they, um, that had never been done before. Because uh-huh. the, the, the shoe companies were like, well, we, our shoes are the reason you're famous. And the Jordan's like, well... We our know name it. is because that's how it's got your shoe famous, right? And they're like, we're son- we know our son's going to be famous, so what are you going to do about it? And they're like, we want a percentage of the revenue. And they're like, oh, I don't know if this is going to happen. And Sonny goes to Phil Knight, and earlier in the, earlier in the uh, movie he says, I know how to get Phil across the line. you just got to make him fear something. <laughs> and so Sonny thinks it's over when uh, Michael Jordan's mum calls him. And wants the percentage, and he says, oh, "I don't know how to do this." And then he goes and goes, goes up to Phil Knight and says, "Oh, it's all good, but they want a percentage of the revenue." He's like, "What?" Like he's taken so long to get Phil Knight on board, and Phil's like, "You know what?" He swears. He said, "Effort. Let's just, just let's just do it." And they're like, "Okay." And they sold 162 million dollars worth of Jordan sneakers in the first year of signing Jordan. Say that again. 162 million dollars worth Gosh, of sneakers in the 80s. Yeah. Wow. Which is crazy. And this, I mean, and very, and one of the reasons that the Jordan said they want to do it was because they want to think about other people and give back to many other people, so they would earn that money. And I believe that Jordan has donated. I could be wrong about this, but in excess of a billion dollars to charities and things yeah, like wow. that because of that. And funnily enough, it says at the end of the movie that Michael Jordan earns approximately $400 million in revenue every year Gosh. from having that percentage of Gosh. originally agreed back then. You're kidding. Back in the 80s. So even if he doesn't do anything else, he gets $400 million. Yeah. <laughs> Imagine how many churches you could start with $400 million a year. <laughs> That's true, but we need a basketball player first. That's the thing. <laughs> Are there any basketball players listening? <laughs> yeah, Would you, you like to get involved in basketball for the up? gospel? Now, why was I Joel will design a shoe. <laughs> yeah, I think I'd be terrible at designing a shoe, actually. Uh, I was trying to think about why I said that, though. I think it was more you've got to come up with new ideas. Mm. And to the gospel is unchanging, but to for people to hear it, you need to keep coming up with new yeah, ideas. Yeah. How did you con- well, how did you start talking about like you talked about Solis and you started with four people? Yeah, and that was odd. That was seen as odd at the time, or it was just seen as different. Not to start off with, I, I think. See, see, we we were we were like Louise, my wife, and my were myself and were um, engaged. I think, mm-hmm. and we got married pretty soon after we started Solis. And there was a young couple, Kenton, Kylie who were doing it with us. And I think people just looked at us as the next batch of enthusiastic young adults who were going to run the youth group for a little while. So from that point of view, it didn't seem strange. But what was strange was when we stopped just running the youth group on Friday night and we started hanging out together on Saturday night. Uh-huh. That's what I think people went, oh, that's different. Yeah. And to start off with, because there was only four of us, I, I think they just thought we were just doing our own thing. But then when we started inviting everyone to come out with us, that was different because in churches back in the day, people, a lot of young adults would go to church but they didn't expect to be friends with all the other people in the service, particularly the even the young adults in the service. Mm. After the service, all the different young adults would go off in different directions doing their own thing and have friendships within. But going to church was a bit like going to the movies. You go along to the movies with your friends and then you go out and do other stuff afterwards. So church was a bit like that. So for us to stand up in church, and I remember we did this. I'd get up each week and say, hey... Lou and I and Kent and Kylie are hanging out next Saturday. If any of you want to hang out, that's cool. Just come and come and join us. <laughs> and oh, what are you doing? What's the program? Oh, we don't have a program. We're just hanging out. Mm-hmm. Oh, so why? Oh, because we're friends. Mm-hmm. And people didn't get that. They thought that was strange. That's that kind of professionalism things we've been talking about too. Is like, where's the program, guys? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It like, is. We just Definitely. want to hang out as Christians. Very much so. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Was there yeah. P- was there a lot of pushback from that? Some, yeah, some. I mean, we we had <laughs> we had three different kinds of kids come along to our youth, oh, to our church at the time. Three different kinds of young people go to our church. There was 
there were the Christian kids who had better friends outside of the church than inside the church and they didn't want to come to our youth group because they already had friends outside the church. And in fact, it actually probably would have been to the detriment of their social life if they came along to our group actually because we were pretty daggy, I think. <laughs> and then there were kids who had good friend, Christian friends at church and didn't see any reason to come along to the youth group because they already had their friends on Sunday night when they went to church and they just did stuff together. You know, had their own holidays and had their own social stuff they did together. And then there was a couple of kids that just didn't have any friends and they were the kids that came to our group. And so they didn't get invited to the other group. So when they were invited to join our group and we invited everybody else to come, that was weird. It was like, oh, well, we haven't been friends with these people. Why are you asking us to come be friends with these people? And mm. is this a church program? Is it a church group? And we're like, well, we run the youth group for the teenagers on Friday night, but then as young adults, we just want to hang out with everyone. Like we think it'd be really cool if we were all friends. And we had a group on Friday night, on sorry, on Saturday night where we hung out as mates. So that was seen as weird. Yeah. So it was almost like, unless it's a church program, I'm not going because I have my friends outside. Yeah, I think people ration how much time they spend at church. Mm. And there was a few reasons for that. One of them was theological because at the time the theological idea was an incarnational mission strategy, which is you go to church for discipleship and then you go outside the church to to go and be in the world to mm. tell other people about Jesus. So the, the, the rationale of incarnational mission is Jesus came as a Jew to the Jews, so we should be a surfer to the surfers or go to the pubs to be with people who go to pubs. Because a lot of people at the time said, well, if we don't go to the pubs and talk to people about Jesus, those people are never going to come to church. So we're actually never going to see them come to church. But I actually looked at that strategy and thought, actually, I see more people leave the church to go to the pub than the other being way around. Evangelized by yeah, the pub, there was said, more yeah. people being evangelized by the pub. Yep. So we thought, what if we did evangelism and discipleship at church like what if we just invite people to come to church to be with us and if there wasn't a formal group that really fitted that idea maybe we could just do it socially so we sort of thought it's funny how we compartmentalize our life into christian activities and then our own stuff mm. and then so i talked about the theological reason the other reason is people rationed how much time they go to church because they have lots of other things to do so early on when we started spending more time together as friends people would actually be critical of that saying oh you're spending too much time in the church who's going to there's going to be no mission if you spend all your time in this little holy huddle where you're not going out into the world but the reality is we all went to uni we all played football or, or some version of sport we all you know did go to see bands and other things like that so we were actually in the world all the time but we were just spending a bit more time in our own social time for the kingdom and i think people didn't really get that they thought it was a church activity and we're asking them to spend more time at church so that was a confusion it's fascinating how it was like i don't it was it, that sounds like it's almost people didn't want to give up their personal time that's right yeah yeah there was a sense that there's i've got an allocation of time for the yeah. church and then i have my own personal time yeah and that personal time, I am on mission to my non-Christian friends, but I'm actually just doing, you know, my my work and my study, and you know, um, I've got a bit of time for the church as well, and I've got time for me to hang out. So the thing that people didn't get is we were hanging out together in our free time as Christians socially. They didn't get that, and we'd have the Bible and we'd open it up and we'd have a pray and all that sort of stuff that people usually associated with church activities that most Christians in our generation weren't actually doing in their free time. They were just doing other stuff in their free time. How do you think you, you started that idea? Uh, how do you think you started to get a little bit of momentum, just a tiny bit? Like, like oh, this actually could work. This yeah, is, it's a good question. Because isn't that, I mean, you need a little bit of momentum for any idea mm. to start gathering more people to be interested in it. So I'm just wondering, like, what, what was the first sign you thought, oh, we might be onto something here? Yeah, I, I mean, the, there's the personal experience we had and then there's some interesting theories we could talk about too. Yep. So, you know, there was a, a time where it, it took a while for a few people to come and sit down and talk to us about why we were getting together as friends and why we're asking them to come and hang out with them. But they're actually a bit cranky when they first used to mm. come because they said, because you're inclusive of everyone for your friendship group, that excludes us. And That's I said, I don't understand. What do you mean? And they said, well, we, we think friends are, you know, you need, to, you need to have to be a healthy person. You need to have a small group of friends that you're really close to. And you can't be too thinly spread and have too many friends. So you need a small group of friends. And so because they wanted to be exclusive in their friendship group, 
when we were saying we were a big friendship group and we're inviting everyone to come to it, they felt excluded because we were so inclusive. <laughs> that makes sense? It, it makes sense what you're saying, but it doesn't make sense when they say, say it. So it's almost like you're excluding their idea not of how, what, how friendship should work, not in, yeah. but you're still including them in the group. Well, I mean, most people really want a few close friends and don't want to mm-hmm. be, you know, too stretched thin. And that was quite reasonable. So that's fine. But the group of us were really close. But the reason we were so close is because we were serving Jesus together and spending, and, and spending time. our time. Instead of spending our time surfing or going to movies, we spent our time sharing the gospel. So we became closer the more people joined our group, actually. So we were close friends and we had all these other people as friends. And over time, many of them became our close friends too. So uh, that's been pretty much the social framework of the the whole 30 years of my adult life, really, Mm. just doing friendship like that. And I I do have friends outside of Solis as well, and they're very dear to me and close. But to actually have a group of people that is willing to say we're a friendship group because in John 15, 15, Jesus said, I no longer call you servants, I call you friends. If you do what I say, which is love one another and lo- and love others. So if we are loving other people and telling them the truth about Jesus, then that's a pretty cool way of being a friendship group in my mm. mind. So, so the way we used to put that into practice was we'd say, well, most friendship groups in our generation would hang out on a Saturday. That was the precious <coughs> night of the week where people used to, go do social stuff. It's not so much like that anymore. It's not as rigid as that, but that was how our generation was. And so we decided we're going to hang out on Saturday nights together and invite people to come and hang out. So, yeah, there's a, there's a, a social scientist called Everett Rogers, actually, who talks about how uh, things gain momentum. And he talks about this idea of a, uh, a diffusion of ideas. Oh, okay. Yeah, so... A diffusion is how to how things spread. So just briefly, it's uh, a social science theory that explains how an idea or a product gains momentum and spreads through a specific population or social system. And the, the official term of his um, idea is the diffusion of innovation. So an innovative mm-hmm. idea, he says, how do you take an innovative idea and then spread it? And that's his whole theory, which would be probably interesting to talk about as we talk about soul revival too. Yeah, right. So because he breaks it up into three, oh no, not three. I'm looking at that wrong. There's five, five different kind of yeah steps of that process yeah, of something yeah. being adopted. Yeah. Um, the first one is innovators. And I assume that, like the idea of, for example, with Solis would be that would have been and you're you're an innovator in doing that. Yeah. Um, yeah. and then so the early adopters were people like oh the people that you thought perhaps weren't felt a bit on the outer, didn't mm. have as many friends. Where did you think that the next stage, I suppose, is early majority? Did you start to get to an, a majority of people? Yeah. And is that yeah. when people were more convinced? Yeah. Because that's what I think about even with the Jordan thing and, and air is that when there's a new idea that maybe a few people or one person thinks it's going to work, they have to go through a lot to actually make it happen. Mm. So... And then people will say, oh, actually other people agree with it too now. Mm. Oh, now we can jump on board. So that's the kind of the, even the early majority or the late majority that um, this person talks about. So it'd be interesting to think about in terms of Solis, maybe through each stage. We already talked about the yeah, innovator sure. stage, which is when you started talking about it with Kent and Kylie and Lou. Yeah, yeah. But early adopters, what, did they, what do you think they look like in terms of Solis? Yeah, in Soul Revival, the early adopters were people who, didn't have friends and thought mm. this is great these guys want to be friends with us and we genuinely did we weren't just being friends with them because they were coming to our group we just no you weren't thinking like the adoption life cycle no no <laughs> no, no right, we'll was, get these guys oh yes and then they'll be our friends and then we'll have more friends <laughs> yeah, yeah then we'll have an early majority <laughs> <laughs> i only came up with came across this theory just a few years ago actually but transposing this over the top of the story of solis is yeah the early adopters were um yeah, some of those kids who were just really looking for a meaningful relationship with Jesus that expressed itself through a meaningful relationship with other people. Mm-hmm. And I think that was a really cool thing. There was a bit of a sense in our generation that church, for some of us, had become a bit too event-based and okay. it had become a bit plastic and it was just a bit rote. And we'll go along to this event every week and whether it be a youth group or a church service, there was this understanding that, oh, if you attend this event, you'll be a Christian. Mm-hmm. And we're just like, oh, a lot of people coming to this event don't even want to be here. They're only coming because their parents make them come. Or that was very so. much a time of the 80s and 90s too, mm. right? There was, we, and if we think about 
um, the grunge era of music, mm. for example, was all pushing events. Wild, hairy, <laughs> wild, hairy, uh, hair metal. That's what I was trying to think of. Wild, hairy, wild, hairy, wild metal. hairy metal. That's a new innovative approach. <laughs> Maybe that's what we should call our duo. Wild, hairy metal. <laughs> wild, hairy metal. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, it was an interesting moment actually because um, metal during the eighties was very plastic itself. Actually, it was mm. very overproduced bands like Poison and. Guns and Roses, and I don't know. Can you think of any other examples? White, White Snake, White Snake, all that kind of. Very the hair, the big the hair, big hair yeah, and like big, really big. long solos. Oh and things yeah, like that. really pretentious. Really, <laughs> look at me, I'm amazing. Jeez, you're not a product of the eight, <laughs> late eighties, early nineties. No, no. <laughs> anyway, and then bands like uh, REM started coming along, and Joy Division, and bands like that were in the underground, and we used to listen to some of that. But when things really changed was when I think it really changed when grunge came along, mm. and when Nirvana released. Smells like Teen Spirit. I reckon most of those glam bands went, okay, time to hang up the guitars. It's mm. ch- the world has changed. So there was this sense of authenticity that people were looking for. So instead of getting all glammed up and going on stage with big hair, Kurt Cobain went on stage with, with his pyjamas on or with a cardigan, you know, just mm. walked on stage. Everyone loved it. It was a bit depressing, but it was super interesting and really energetic. You know, Pearl Jam came along and lots of other bands. And that's when Soul Revival first started. So you've got a bit of a – the start of our – group started at an epoch where there yeah. was a new new gen, new generation and a new culture just emerged as we started this new idea of let's just be friends with each other so i think there's a bit of that as well but what was really interesting is um yeah our senior minister let it let me get up every week and announce mm-hmm. this group we called soul revival and we were meeting on saturday night and everybody thought that was a bit different because it wasn't even a church group it was the leaders of the youth ministry hanging out with each other and it wasn't a formal ministry of the church and so it took people a while but once people got their heads around it some people started getting interesting and just watching us and we had a lot of enthusiasm like we were really excited about hanging out together and got up to all sorts of fun stuff and what I found was there were some guys who were going out with their non-christian friends more than they hung out with us but they were basically drinking every week and one of the boys ended up going from one pub to another and having a wee on the fence on the way down from one pub to another and got arrested by the police. And so he was only a young bloke, so I think that scared him a bit. And I think I think he just came along to check out what we were doing as as he noticed that we were, had just as much psych as his friends who surfed, but we weren't drinking and we weren't getting high and we weren't doing all the stuff that a lot of other young crew were doing. But we're really, really into our identity as Christians and had a lot of fun at the same time. And so I think there was a group of early adopters that sort of noticed that we were really excited about Jesus and at the same time we didn't care if they came or they didn't come. So when we would announce it in a way to say, hey, come along to the group, but it was more like an invitation, open invitation, rather than, hey, you all should come to this young people because there's all this alcohol and drugs over here and all the adults want to keep you away from that. So we've programmed you away from the bad Yeah, and I think some people saw youth group like that, like this is a way to keep my kids out of drugs and alcohol and other stuff. But um, when, when Young Crew started to see it was young people that started it, and this is where the idea of shock absorber came up in my head because as a church is like a car driving down the road, it's going to hit bumps in the road and it needs shock absorbers to absorb those bumps and it's not the it's it's the young people of the church that are the shock absorbers Mm. often young people know the culture better than adults do and so we had picked up on the changing culture before our adults in our church had i mean notoriously it takes churches 15 to 20 years to pick up on a new idea from culture and you know we were picking up on it straight away so we'd picked up on the grunge thing so we'd we'd actually go to council cleanups was which is where people i think some people call it hard trash and all sorts of different names around australia but where people put rubbish that they don't want anymore they put it out on the curb like old lounges yeah old lounges and stuff like that and the council would come pick it up and i remember the adults laughing at us thinking who are you when they saw us walking down the road with these lounges that we'd found (laughs) on the side of the road taking it to the youth minister's garage that we'd painted you know this terrible colour but it was a space that the youth minister said we could hang out in and we put these lounges in and lamps and people thought it was just ridiculous because <laughs> they were into this like hyper professional church make it really look great super and super clean super clean like Hillsong music and you know big big sound and all this sort of stuff and we were just hanging out in garage but I think there was a lot of teenagers that were drawn to the the uh, authenticity of that so so yeah some of the early adopters were drawn from that some of the early adopters were drawn because their families were broken gen x was the first generation to have uh 
large scale divorce uh, with rates of 50% divorce rates in the 80s with parents. So to have something that was there every week that was just stable was really attractive to a lot of young people. Mm. And so, yeah, we grew really quickly mm. from that. Um, but that first stage was probably, took us about probably six to eight months to start helping those early adopters to get what we were trying to do. Mm. And then uh, going by, who was the person that came up with this model? Sorry, you told me before, but I've... Uh, His name's Everett Rogers. Everett Rogers, thank you. He then goes on to talk about early majority. So is that, do you think, where you started, that's where you said, now we're growing? Is it early majority? Then it describes it here as more conservative, but open to new ideas and active in the community. Yeah, I, I think the early people that came along could see something was new and maybe could see what it might become. Mm. But a lot of the early majority didn't see it until it was working. So you always get some people who won't get on board on a new idea until they see it working. So once, like, like that guy, my friend of mine that I was talking about who was walking from pub to pub and had a wee on the fence, he wasn't going to get involved at the early stage, mm. really. I suppose he might have actually even been one of the early majority, to be honest, um, where he he's like, oh, this is working. These These people are doing something that's really fresh and new and seems really exciting so you wanted to be a part of it and so i think more people got involved in that i think also the other thing with the early majority is i've got this theory that i think christian young people are very cynical now at the moment i think that people might be able to get back to us on this to tell us if these statistics are correct but i think i overheard tim bilhart saying either on a podcast or somewhere just talking that that we're losing up to 60 percent of our teenagers who grow up in the church at the moment, 60% of teenagers who grow up in the church in Sydney Anglican Church are leaving the church. Yeah. So I think there's a lot of cynicism. There's a, And what I would call a cultural cringe about Christianity, there's a sense that the action's in the world and that maybe the church is a bit embarrassing, that what we stand for is not as cool as what uh, they can get somewhere else. And, all, of course, there's a lot of detractors who are saying that Christianity is, is actually a harmful uh, thought system now so i think a lot of christians are a bit cringy they don't want to get too enthusiastic about church and that group of teenagers that have better friends outside the church than in the church can tend to be a bit cringy towards church sometimes and also kids who have got lots of friends at church and they don't want to necessarily join something organized they're also could be a little bit cringy as well so there's kind of this concept i think amongst a lot of young people I'll go to church, but I won't go get too excited about it. I won't it. go too hard. I won't go too hard. So I want to have a part-time job and I want to play sport and I want to have all these other parts of my world, which are all fine things to have, but it can actually be a bit embarrassing to be a Christian. Now, if our viewers and listeners still haven't got their head around what I'm saying there, the thing I draw a parallel to that of is uh, a lot of people wouldn't probably think about this these days because Australia is a lot more self-confident than it used to be. But back in the 60s, 70s, even earlier, you know, like Australia had this cultural cringe towards England in, you know, the first 50 years since Federation where everything in England was great. And if you wanted to succeed, you had to go to England to mm -hmm. be a painter or a poet or a business person. But then after the war, it kind of flipped to America and yeah. everything from America was cool. And we had to do it like America and be successful in America. So back in the 70s when ACDC wanted to make a name for themselves, they went to America they and did. that's that's how they got popular. And so they cleaned up their sound a little yeah, bit too yeah. with uh, Mutt Lang as the producer. Yeah, and that's yeah. when they really hit a big in 79. There you go. Well, social scientists talk about the Australian cultural cringe, mm. that we have a bit of a cringe factor. And so we've got a bit of a chip on our shoulder that we have to prove ourselves all the time. But then there was a turning point in my mind, which was in the early 80s, there was this uh, event called the America's Cup. I can't remember exactly what year. It's 1981 or 1982. Maybe you can look, look it, it up, up while I'm talking. Mm -hmm. But basically, the America's Cup was this massive big boat race that America always won. So mm -hmm. they actually called it an America's Cup because even though they raced other nations, no, I don't think anyone else had won or maybe some other countries had won it once or twice or something. But anyway, there's this massive oversized trophy and people with massive oversized egos sailing to try and get the trophy. <laughs> and anyway, Australia put a boat in this race. I think you can call it a boat. And Australia 2. Australia 2, there you go. 1983. There you go, 83. And Bob Hawke was the Prime Minister. And I remember that we won the America's Cup and I remember everyone going, what? We actually beat the Americans at the America's Cup. Mm. 
And um, and he says, doesn't he say that any boss who sacks everyone for not turning up today is a bum? Yep, <laughs> it was fantastic. And I'm old enough to remember I was in year seven or eight, and um, I'm watching the prime minister on TV while I'm having my cornflakes, and he's because we just won it. It was a nighttime event for us. It just happened overseas, so we all woke up to the news, and the prime minister had already had a few beers, I think, by the look of him, and he had this you know suit jacket on with all these Aussie flags on it. It was a bit of a larrikin, yeah. and so he's like, anyone who sacks if you're not turning up's a bum, and all us kids went, does that? mean we don't have to go to school today and mum goes go to school oh, okay no worries. but i noticed this there was a change in our society where oh we are australian maybe as australians we can actually cut it with the rest of the world and i kind of think the church has the same problem like we have this sort of cultural cringe a lot of our young people that you know oh it's kind of embarrassing being a christian i want to be a christian but you know it's sort of people laugh at me i'll just keep my head down i won't get too into it and in the late 80s what i noticed is when our church put on a concert we used to back in the 80s they used to bring in a christian band every now and again for a for a dance and stuff and everyone because would live go music along. was a big thing it was a big thing it was a massive thing yeah so it was a christian music scene but when a band had come to our church all the young people would stand up against the wall at the back and no one would go and dance except for two girls who'd go up the front and have a dance together and maybe two or three people would go and join but I remember watching them thinking these guys don't want to get into it because they don't want to show they're too into it so when Soul Revival came along we we decided we'd get some of the boys in Soul Revival who had a band to play in a backyard one night and moshing had just started and I don't know maybe I might be pulling a long bow here but I actually think Soul Revival was the first Christian group (laughs) in Sydney to actually mosh you've said that a number of I times know, and I'm quite proud of it. To claim it I'm going to claim it I don't know if anyone else can come up with an <laughs> earlier date but we went to Black Stump in 1992 and we were moshing to everything that was on stage and everyone's like who's going what's going on here and um, anyway that's not that important but what, what it signifies is we lost our cringe so as a youth group we didn't care what people thought of us anymore and I think I got that from Nirvana in a way because Kurt Cobain wasn't getting up on stage trying to be the Spice Girls or Guns N' Roses. He just wanted to be him. And he was so confident. I'm like, well, if we've got the Bible and we follow Jesus, who's the Son of God, fully God, fully man, and he died on the cross for our sin and rose from the dead, that's unreal. Like, that's the best thing ever. So let's be confident about it. So I suppose our attitude went from being cringe to, you know, it went from pre-America's Cup to post-America's Cup early and because we were so confident, I think people just went, wow, that's different. And that was fresh as well. It wasn't just what we were doing or how we were doing it. It was the fact that we didn't have a cringe factor anymore. Because I remember there was a band came to Guy Anglican Church and Soul Revival went as a part of other young people who went to this band night. And at that time, not everyone at Guy Anglican would go into Soul Revival. And they all stood up against the wall and we all went up the front and were crowd surfing the bass player. <laughs> and so people were like, what's going on with this? So I think that majority thing was when the early adopters were actually living it out. Mm-hmm. The early adopters were authentically... And that, we didn't care how many people came and joined us. And it was almost like that not caring was what led to mm. the explosion. I remember Because we ended up with, with 500 young people at one stage. Yeah. And I remember you saying that there was a realisation that once you made Saturday night the time where you hang out as friends, Mm. that um, now it's completely exited my mind as I was about, oh, the action was in the church. Yeah. And I think that's what you're saying is that, so if you're living as confident Christians together and you have an intentional time to do that, then you're more likely to live it out outside the church as well. Mm. And so that's where I think that early adoption part of what we're talking about really makes sense to me it fits with what you're saying that's what i'm trying yeah to say. and just like nirvana walked away from the hair metal of the mm. 1980s we walked away from event-based christianity and mm. said we, we are christians but we're not just running this great event mm. or trying to sh- mm. uh, pr- try and impress that on you that we're good at it or pretend well, that we're good at it in in authenticity to that to a certain degree yeah well it was no, no, i don't think yeah. people running events are trying to do that no no and, it's, and there's nothing wrong with running an event i'm no. just saying from our early start it was we just stopped trying to be cool Mm. we just thought it was great to be christian and we didn't have to try and worry about what other non-christians thought of us and it's almost like when we stopped worrying about what they thought of us we were heaps into what we were doing people were like oh why are these people so into what they're doing Mm. i think there was something about that and again it recalls the ideas that we've talked about professionalism and how like even in the 80s you had to wear a suit and you had to love i think about those 80s um stockbroker movies where they've got like the suit and the, like the Rolex got a gold Rolex yeah, watch and all that yeah. kind of thing it fits with that 
and the event the event kind of fits with that kind of cultural moment and then with grunge and everything it was like no we need to come back to being more authentic mm. it's funny how life moves like that isn't it and it, mm. the other thing that makes you think of it is the we talked about the jesus revolution movie mm. before is the parallels between what was going on for you with at Soul revival and you and the leaders and everyone mm. else going to Soul revival and what happened in the mm. jesus revolution movie that yeah, young yeah. people were it was a, such a big movement of change and a yeah. reaction to what was going on before yeah yeah i think i think what's interesting is the uh what are the next processes that he's got? There's the idea of uh, late, going, ma- late majority going stuff. to the early majority. You start getting a critical mass, I would call that. Yep. And then the late majority is when it's really starting to grow. The problem Older, is less educated people. Yeah, yeah. There you go. <laughs> well, <laughs> I don't think I'd use those contexts, but <laughs> but I, <laughs> but it's it's like late, there's always like a bell curve, isn't there? There's mm. like you know if you draw a bell curve, which if everyone doesn't know what a bell curve is, it's a curve in the shape of a bell, mm-hmm. and the bell curve is at either end is the the less people on a graph. If you've got less people in the beginning, and then less people at the end, mm-hmm. early on there's less. You know the early adopters are people who are pioneering people. And there's less pioneering people in society, and there's some people that are never going to change. So there's some people who love change at the beginning of the bell curve. Some people who hate change at the end of the bell curve. And you're probably not going to ever get too many of the people who don't like change getting involved, but the majority of people are in the middle. So the early majority is the first groups of people that get on board. I think what happened in the Jesus movement is they got an early majority and then it sort of withered away because it was so tied to the culture. So in the 70s, they tied themselves symbolically so much to the hippie movement that Mm. they dressed like them, they had the same music, they had everything. So when the bottom fell out of the hippie movement the jesus movement seemed to disperse as well but early on we're remembering like we can't be too closely tied to the grunge era because i remember by the time we kind of got on our feet as a group culture was already changing because i think culture changes a lot quicker these days and i remember thinking the culture had changed when i first saw paris hilton with a dog (laughs) in a handbag and i'm like wow okay that early 2000s yeah 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 yeah. i'm like nah the culture's changed there's no way some lady could get up on stage with a dog in a handbag back in the early 90s and being taken seriously. So the culture had changed. But yep. what we were thinking is, what are the abiding principles of what we're doing that, that we can keep passing on to each new generation? So for us, that bigger majority of people needed to be a long-term thing, not just a short-term thing. And I think that was helpful for us to not just canonize something that succeeded in the early 90s mm. that by the t- early 2000s we were reinventing ourselves and again in the 2010s and again in the 2020s we're reinventing ourselves again yeah. so. i was going to ask you just as because you we talked about kind of going through that adoption cycle how do you deal with uh, people that push back on you really hard with some of the ideas oh it's very controversial about? new ideas are very mm. controversial in the church i think in the 1990s, we've talked about this quite a few times, but there's a bit of a war in youth ministry between oh, yes. No Guts, No Glory people who were saying that a real authentic youth group is to just do Bible study and then people who had games and activities in their group that was probably a Jesus movement model really, you could probably call the cultural approach. So a cultural approach was disdained by people who wanted to do a bible study they thought a cultural approach with its funnel method the funnel method was get a lot of people to come to a youth group some will go to bible study and some will go to church that was the funnel Uh, the people who were just wanting to run bible study said well the reality is most of the people who go to youth group aren't interested in having their real needs met which is to come to know jesus through the bible so they're shtick was to throw out all the games and activities on friday night and just run a bible study before church on sunday night for teenagers you might end up with four kids but they'll be hardcore no mm. guts no glory yep. and then they'll start asking their friends uh Solis was a third different kind of model which was only one church so it wasn't really a model it was just another church <laughs> that we'd come up with something different <laughs> and that had that had kind of been a more of an a, a proto inter intergenerational model you know, where we were saying, let's get young adults and teenagers to be friends with each other in appropriate ways. Now, that might not sound too hard, but back in the 90s, it was almost impossible to get young adults to hang out socially with teenagers. Just wasn't done. Wasn't done. Mm-hmm. because not, not because of the impropriety of it. It was just that young adults liked their freedom and alcohol and teenagers were restricted. So to actually do something for the two meant that the adults, young adults had to restrict their freedom a bit, do some safe ministry training and actually have some boundaries around their social activity that they imposed on themselves not that were imposed on them things like we're not going to drink on a saturday night which was super controversial so 
people responded to some of the stuff like that is, oh, you don't drink on Saturday night. Do you think you're better than us or, or whatever? Or, wow, you guys just see each other every week. That seems weird. Don't you have any other friends? Oh, you must not be reaching out any non-Christians. But the reality was because we did scripture at the school and chip lunches at the school, we had heaps and heaps of non-Christians come along who became Christians. And the funny thing was, coming back to that earlier discussion of the early adopters, is what really got Christians across the line who had that cringe factor was seeing non-Christians living as Christians. Because a lot of Christian kids haven't seen any non-Christians become Christians and then live as Christians. So here's all these Christians who are feeling a bit cringy about being too into Jesus. And all these kids who just become Christians in the last two months are moshing out the front of a band and enjoying being Christian and getting way into it. And all of a sudden they had no no fear of what other people thought and so i think the christians then started to get on board mm-hmm. so that's what it got almost a sounds lot of like christians involved those people were the late majority well the christian teenagers were the late majority well actually yeah. here's here's the thing maybe the early adopters in our case were a few kids without friends and then kids who became christians at school yeah. and the early adopters were the christian kids who saw that happen and got really excited about it and probably their parents were the late adopters the late majority because to start off with they're like why are my kids going to church so much why are they getting so excited about being christian why are they hanging out with each other at church on a saturday night like Mm. that's their time to go out with their friends and the, the some of the christian parents were saying don't take this christian thing too seriously like you know you have to get good marks at school and go to uni and have a job and all this other stuff and you know even to this day i i still come across parents who are a bit oh, my kids don't need to go to youth group because they go to a Christian school and they get all their youth group from the school and they go to church on Sunday night. That's enough for them. They've got other things to do. But my my impression is when kids don't go to the local youth group, um, they're less likely to stay in the local church long term. That's your experience. Yeah, and it's backed up by statistics from our context where rather than losing 60% of our teenagers, we tend to probably hold on to about 70 Eighty percent of our teenagers hang around in the faith because there's that authentic Christian community that they're a part of, and that authentic Christian community isn't a comfortable community. It's actually a costly community. So when you give up something else for the kingdom, and you're putting a group of people first when you could be going out and doing something else, that is showing that this is really valuable to me. So that can be a really powerful motivator. It's really fascinating you say that uh, the, yeah you're willing to the costliness of it the willing to give something up. Um, I was listening to a podcast recently uh, with uh, it's, uh, the guest was a guy called um, he's like the healthy gamer and he's a doctor that was doing a lot of gaming but then got through uh, college and is now advising people on how to feel better about certain things and get better. And he was saying like we've been. So much so in our culture now, we are given everything we want, every convenience. Mm. Our phone is just right there if we need anything. And he, well, some of the advice is to, it's a lot of males between the ages of 20 and 30, mm. and they comment on a Reddit program and he answers it. And he actually coaches people online mm. live. And he has something like 2 million subscribers to his channel on YouTube. But he was saying that one of the things he says to people is like, do something that's hard. Mm. Do something that actually um, makes you feel like you've worked hard and you have been rewarded by something. And mm. we talked about this a while ago when Ethan and Tim were on the podcast as well, mm. is that because our, our phones, for example, don't let us actually work hard for something before we receive, mm. um, we talked about dopamine and things like that, but it doesn't. <coughs> that's what's interesting about it is that it sounds like even back then, the early days of Soul Revival, it was the same thing. It's still a costly thing. You've got to give up your Saturday nights. Mm, And I think that is how we've obviously done ministry for a very long time. And I think, think of my experience, I came from a non-Christian family. It was almost like, why are these people, there's something about people giving up their Saturday nights to go, why are they doing this? (laughs) And we we talk about why. Another reason, like, why do we (laughs) come up with solutions? But it's like, well, why are these people taking the time out of where they could be doing something to actually be spending time with me and others mm. to actually in community, it seems to really bring people together. And I think that we're, and even more so now that we continually have these things where everything is given to us, everything feels easy, mm. that when something gets hard, if we, if we don't welcome that difficulty and Jesus asks us to take up our cross daily, 
if we don't welcome those difficulties, then I don't think we are actually experiencing life in the way that God intended. And mm. I think there's a whole pattern of that of what you were talking about. Yeah, know. it's interesting. Isn't it? Yeah, I mean, we read Dietrich Bonhoeffer's stuff about costly discipleship mm. early on, and he talks about discipleship is costly, and we embrace that. And there was a movie that came out at the same time as we started our youth group called The Commitments, which was about a bunch of Irish kids in Dublin who wanted to start a rhythm and blues band, I think it was. And they were they realised the only way they were going to get this band going is if they were committed to it and each other. And they had to be committed to the music and committed to each other. And we saw a parallel there between us and what we were doing, that we had to be committed to Jesus and we had to be committed to each other to get this youth group going. Because mm. if we didn't turn up every week, then they w- the thing wouldn't have g- happened. So, uh, I mean, people opted in and opted out of that, even from an early stage. But um, that that commitment was expressed in a group we call the Commitments, which is those of us that are committed Christians who are committed to Jesus and committed to coming along to this group regularly to to really give it a good go, we'll call ourselves the Commitments, mm. like the movie. And that was really powerful uh, for us. And gave us a really strong sense of we're a part of a group of people who really love Jesus and love each other. So and that's how we started really the night good. too, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah, and we it always started with commitment. To try yeah. and set the tone yeah. and the culture. Mm. Of a, oh, a flashing light in the background. <laughs> <laughs> but trying to yeah set the tone and the culture yeah. of how yeah. of that community of we yeah. are still giving up mm. this night and this is what we do together. And the other thing we used to celebrate is that Christianity is perpetually new. So it's perpetually new and different. So... Mm. Jesus talked about the fact that you can't put new wine into old wineskins, saying, you know, this is different to to what's happened in the past. And he's come to fulfill the law and here's the new wine and, it, and there needs to be new wineskins. So there's that sense of perpetual freshness that comes with Christianity, which we feel really excited about because it's Jesus who builds his church and all we have to do is partner with him as he does it. So it's not like we have to work out all the different sociological realities each generation necessarily for it to work. It's just... We've got the freedom to enjoy using our brains to try and help us to work through things and mm. continue to be doing things in a new way. So so one of the things we think is why we think at Soul Revival, we're still not we, – we don't look now in 2023 like we did in 1992, mm. like we are a different expression. In some ways we're similar. But we haven't institutionalised the early way of doing Soul Revival. We've institutionalised the idea of being friends with Jesus and friends with each other. When Jesus says he's calling us friends, then that is an incredible honour and privilege. And we are children of God. We are part of a body of Christ. We are in a family of God. We we are in a, a fresh new reality. And calling people to join that by accepting, hearing the gospel and accepting Jesus as their Lord individually as they repent of their sins and believe in Jesus... That is really fresh and new. So I feel like one of the things that's worth continuing to think about is for people who are like looking at their structures at the moment and they might feel a bit tired, think about rather than starting with the the actual ministry, think of the relationships the leaders of that ministry have. To think about that group of leaders expressing their, uh, their reconciliation with God and with each other in a relational form. So for us as youth leaders in the 90s, it was let's be friends on Saturday night. Eventually that's turned into a church service on Saturday night and a hangout on Saturday night. And that's great. But for others it might be, hey, we're running this church service together. Why don't we actually invest in each other as friends or family, whatever ecclesial category people are excited about or a body or we're a spiritual house. And and let's be committed to Jesus and committed to each other because I think there's a lot of transience in our community today. And a group of people who are actually working together like that, it's actually a really exciting thing to then invite the people you minister to to be a part of that friendship group. And it's not going to be without its challenges, but it is, I think, still a really fresh way to do ministry. I mean, you mentioned earlier um, about the abiding principles mm. that were there and that they were long term. And I think those things you're talking about of uh, expressing our friendship together as being reconciled to God and to each other, yeah. that's unchanging. Yep. But it's also new and fresh every time you do it. It is. And I think yeah. I think that's a really good way to probably f- wrap up the episode is by saying that new ideas are always going to come out, but we've got this this bedrock of like we're still doing this as leaders. So we can, and it is the shock absorber of like new ideas can come in and we can test it against scripture, but also that it also gives us the freedom to be able to try those things out. And we talk about experimenting all the time here, even at church. 
um, this podcast as an example. <laughs> so when we started, it was an experiment. Was yeah. Um, and I think, I think that's something that I've learned from you a long time for a, for a long time is we have these unchanging principles. We say Jesus changes everything here, and then everything else is up for grabs in a sense. And we continually to talk about it. And I think that's what's important in when we come to start. Um, implementing new ideas because our culture is changing you're, you were talking before it's changing more and more often mm. that i think that is the ideal way to approach it rather than how do we get a program out mm. that's going to work for so many different people i mean you, you talked about in the 80s that everyone changed like, every, like it was becoming more consumeristic but even now we talked about all that convenience oh, and stuff so it's, consumeristic now it blows yeah. the 80s away yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly and your phone you can go and search anything you want so i can just the internet allows mm. me to do anything i want mm. so giving up that stuff that we talked about into a community where you are uh, working hard to express that love that jesus mm. gives us i think is really exciting and yeah it's um, good job yeah i think that's probably a good way to good way to finish Thank Excellent. You. That was Thank fun. You. That was, was fun good. to hear yeah, about. I enjoyed it too. I feel like I got a bit of extra information out of you that I haven't heard before, which is really, Possibly. Which is really good. I'll give myself a tick for that <laughs> anyway. And uh, what's the name of our first uh, single that we're going to be releasing? Uh, the times are changing. <laughs> Just still Bob Dylan's. Well, think of the islands theme mm. and um, haven't thought of anything, but maybe something with islands. Islands in the breeze, islands in the sun. The breeze. That's very um, like you're on a resort, isn't it? Anyway, maybe we can have some of our islands. listeners come up with an islands yeah. category that'd be a cool song. I'm trying to think of like so islands and changing and ideas. I'm trying to think. Could be something about a volcano. Oh, so oh, because you never know when the volcano is going to erupt. There you go. There you go. Eruption. Some <laughs> asshole <laughs> somewhere just erupts. Oh yes. There you go. Asshole eruption. Song. That'd be that'd be a full heavy metal song. Okay. Cool. Well, we'll get to working on that after we stop recording. Thank you very much for listening to the Shock Absorber podcast. It's been um, lovely to hear you uh, wax the record on songs and also <laughs> ideas and implementing new solutions. And that's been a lot of fun. So if you do have any ideas or thoughts about it, you can email me at joel at shockabsorber.com.au. Uh, thank you very much for listening. And thank you also to our producer, Eck, who always puts everything together behind the scenes. You never see him. And that's intentional by him, but uh, he does a great job. And also, thank you to Stu. Yeah, one way. One way. One way.